This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. This week, we are walking you through the flames. The city of Philadelphia has seen an uptick in homicides this year, and the number of shootings is above 800. And after a violent summer where lives have been lost, we ask, how can we heal? The nomenclature of post-traumatic stress when we talk about our young people living in impoverished communities is that there is no hope. An effort to bring those that commit violence together with those they victimize. It's been an adversarial conversation, a conversation of this side against the other side. This is my brother who caused harm, but guess what? I lost my brother to someone else. A real conversation about dealing with the hurt beneath the violence. They've been gospel rock stars on stage and off for 90 years. When they would come to sing, they would come crazy. The history and future of the one and only Dixie Hummingbirds. But first, introducing a new Flashpoint segment available only on our podcast. It's called Flashpoint on the Tweets. Flashpoint associate producer Brianna Bond. Hey, Brianna. Hi, everyone. That's right. We're taking it to the tweets, getting your opinion on the Flashpoint topics everybody's talking about. Last week, we held a debate to discuss the upcoming U.S. Supreme Court hearings for nominee Brett Kavanaugh. If you missed our debate show on this topic, you can still catch it on kywnewsradio.radio.com and all podcast platforms. Well, hearings started on Tuesday. We polled Twitter to find out what you all think of Kavanaugh. Cherry, let's go over the results. Let's do it. Options were proven to be qualified, disagree with his views, discuss after hearing, and hold. I'm Googling. (laughs) 40 of you chimed in. Here's what you said. Tied for dead last, both with 5% were the choices. Decide after hearing and hold. I'm Googling. I'm sure you all guessed it would come down to these two. Ready for the top answer? I'm going to give you a drum roll, Brie. Here we go. The highest ranked answer with 50% of the vote was proven to be qualified. That means disagree with his views came in second with 40% of the vote. These results tell us a few things, Cherry. You ready for my breakdown? I'm ready. Break it down. All right. First is that the majority of the people who took this poll already had their minds made up before they even saw the hearings. That means people came in with their perspectives from whatever news outlet or wherever they get their information from. Mm -hmm. They already had their opinions made up about Kavanaugh. Second, most like issues nowadays, this poll was highly polarizing, which shows that Kavanaugh himself is a highly polarized individual. Yeah. So third, this is my last one. People are poised to be unhappy with whatever comes of, <laughs> becomes of this issue. So, um, Sounds like he, America to me. <laughs> yeah, which he most likely will be confirmed, but a lot of people are going to be unhappy. So are you surprised at all? I am not surprised based on what our panelists discussed. He is highly qualified, uh, but it's politics. And politics is what we have here. That is correct. Well, thank you, Brianna. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast officially. 
And congratulations on your very first segment. Flashpoint on the tweets, y'all. All right, we're taking it to the tweets. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. We will be reading out your tweets to us. Yay, next week. <laughs> next week. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is trauma caused by violence. More than 220 lives have been lost to violence in Philadelphia this year, and there have been more than 800 shootings. 800 people, like this week, where three separate shootings sent seven people to area hospitals. And this one in Germantown, when I heard about it, it was particularly chilling. The shooter or shooters were intentionally firing onto that front porch where they struck the two victims. All impacted by the violence can have both visible and invisible scars. And many times the perpetrators and victims are from the same neighborhood. But hurt people tend to hurt others. So the only way to stop it is to heal the pain. So how do we affect healing in mass to stop the violence and treat the trauma? for an entire community. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Ted Corbin. He's an emergency room doctor who co-created a program called Healing Hurt People. It's at Drexel University and it's designed to address trauma suffered by patients who are victims of violence. We also have Shantae Love. She's founder of Every Murder is Real, a healing center for those who have experienced the trauma of violence. And Shantae understands this. She also has experienced what it is like to see violence up close. And finally, we have Kempis Songster. He's the co-founder of the Redemption Project, a nonprofit that documents the stories of men and women sentenced to life in prison. He served 30 years for a tragic crime he committed at age 15. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Ted, I want to start with you. Could you explain sort of what trauma does to people? I know it affects your brain. It affects your reaction. Thank you very much for having us here with you today. We've known for a long time that trauma has a huge impact on the physiology of a person. It affects the development of chronic disease and illness, as well as it gets in us and kind of navigates how we actually work and move in society. And so our efforts have really been to help people understand what they feel and work with them to develop some coping mechanisms and some strategies through case management, peer support, and also some therapeutic services that are culturally relevant and uh, responsive so that they can heal from the trauma that they've experienced. When you're traumatized, you react differently to stimuli in the world just because you're experiencing that trauma. Absolutely. If you don't know about this, you think that something's wrong. What we try to do is get people to understand what it is that they are experiencing. One example is someone who might have problems sleeping. That is, in fact, from something that has triggered them from an experience that they've had, either in their community or, you know, in some instances it's in healthcare. Just getting them to understand what those are and allowing them to Uh, have some tools to work with that to help them. Shantae, you deal with people impacted by trauma every day, and you've also uh, experienced trauma. How how did you know that there was some healing that might be needed? People, especially people of color, we're so used to and accustomed to violence that you don't always recognize that some healing is needed. I'm very, very fortunate that my mother always looked at 
um, culture and healing in that there was always a reaction and an action. And I think that way back in the beginning, she sought out help because this is unnatural. And what do you mean? What, what's so what's unnatural is that you lose someone to a homicide. Um, I think that when I lost my brother to murder, that our my whole life changed. It was almost like the DNA in me was different. And so how do we get that to be the same? How do we get back to something something a little sane, some sanity? And looking at that from a community perspective in a mere healing center, we looked at the communities and the families and how the dysfunction and how they were ripped apart and, and take some practices to bring them back whole again and um, partnering with people like Healing Hurt People to say, hey, you're doing this body of work. How do we bring some evidence based to the community? Letting it shine through their, a different lens. With you, Kempis, I mean, you work uh, trying to promote healing among people, um, but you've seen it from the other side, too. A traumatized person who inflicted trauma. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I committed violence, you know, at the age of 15, you know, and in, in, in committed the ultimate trespass you know, in an in a irreparable way. And so I'm driven by by that, you know, that burden, you know, just to give back, try to bring some balance back to the tears I've, 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 I've left in the fabric of other people's lives. And because one thing I have seen, you know, from even before I, I was released eight months ago was how divided our community is by pain and violence. Explain with that when you say this division yeah. caused by trauma and pain. Because according to how you experience what dimensions of experience your experience with violence is, it shapes how you perceive people that commit violence, how you perceive criminal justice issues. For instance, people that may have lost a family member to violence, they may become members of victims advocacy groups. People who have lost a family member to prison who have committed violence, they may become members of groups trying to end mass incarceration. And both of these groups who are members of the same community may look at each other as the opposition. The folk who are, uh, have a family member on the inside might look at family members who've lost a loved one to violence as you're trying to keep my loved one from coming home. The other side is the family who've lost a loved one to violence is, well, you're, you're not valuing my loved one, you're saying that my loved one had no value. And I see no contradiction between trying to end violence and victimization and trying to end mass incarceration. But the way that the conversation has been going on in our community, it's been an adversarial conversation, a conversation of this side against the other side, and it's based on how we experience violence, and we're members of the same community. And what's interesting is a lot of times... You talk to people on the inside, and I'm sure they have been a victim of the— they've lost loved ones to violence, too, and it all comes full circle. And, so, and Ted, you see a lot of these folks. People actually do self-harm from the trauma that they receive. What's so true is there is, there is an actual divide of folks mm. that are doing work in different spaces. Yeah. And, and it's not—we often get the feedback, well, why are, you, why are you helping people after they've been hurt? You need to work with them when they're in school— we need to work with them throughout the continuum of their lives. And that's what's been void for particularly uh, people of color in terms of the services that they can access. It's not a either or, it's an and when people are in fact able to heal. And, and I, think, I think what Kempis is doing is brilliant in mm-hmm. that it's important for 
both the harmed and the the harmed party and the person and the responsible party when they come together and have some reconciliation i've bared witness to that yes. i think it's an amazing thing to be able to come to some agreement and some understanding yes because there's you know this because we often get it some of the people that we see in the emergency department are have in their past been um responsible parties for harming someone but then they land themselves as people that have been harmed and so how do we how do we work together we can't do it alone yeah it's a it's a combination and it's a continuum of the work that everyone here is doing and then others if you were hurt you can overreact at the slightest thing and many times become someone who harms someone because you were hurt and previously traumatized i will be the first to say that the families that come in our in our home in our center have been victimized and that they are at the ultimate, they're at homicide. But I think that the divide that has happened has happened. I think you're absolutely right that there is a divide. But mm-hmm. I think that for people of color like us, ourselves who are seeing this work and are doing this work, is that we, are, we recreate so it's not a divide. For people of color, being a victim and an offender is all too often the same family. Yes. And so we can no longer say, mm-hmm. okay, you're on this side and you're on this side. No, we have to have an approach where we're intervening, we're preventing, and we're healing. Right. And that it can't be one or the other or a little bit. It has to have all of those things, all of those components. And it has to happen through the beginning of the duration of, of a group of people and people, especially in the urban neighborhoods. Because this is my brother who caused harm. But guess what? I lost, I lost my brother because someone else did the harm. Whatever his life story was and whatever my life story and experience, we both must heal because we're talking about saving a race of people yeah, who are not only they're victimized from a a racist systemic system and that keeps this divide and we can no longer have it because it's talking about the fate of people. And so I know, Kempis, your focus is bringing these two communities together. How hard has that been, number one? And then what has been the reaction when you've been able to do that? It's very hard because the pain is real out there, you know, the, the, the pain, and it's legitimate. When, you, when someone is gone, when something with death is something that you're not coming back from. On the inside, especially looking at this juvenile, the recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings mm-hmm. that has created an unprecedented situation right now, in this society and for our communities where hundreds of people en masse who have committed homicides Mm -hmm. or whether they did it or not were in prison for homicides are coming home. And this has presented a challenge for the community, you know, because it's not just about, well, how well do we reintegrate into society, but how ready is the community to receive us in light of all the pain and all the loss that's out there. And so when you're asking people who've lost a loved one to Let's sit down and let's let's talk about how we can heal. You know, a lot of people ain't trying to hear that. Like, look, my loved one is gone. They're not coming back anymore. And, you know what I'm saying? And it's really a tough thing to navigate. But what I'm driven by is a responsibility that I think we all have to the person and the family that violence and victimization has not happened to yet, but will happen to if we don't do what we have to do together to make violence and victimization no longer characteristics of our community. Yeah. No one can sit this one out. And certainly I, as someone who've committed the ultimate trespass, should be the last person to sit this one out. 
Yeah. And what I noticed is that there seems to be some kind of an awakening because I don't remember these types of discussions talking about healing. People just kind of like moved on. And so I want to talk about the different steps of it, because, Ted, when people come to you, they're they're in the throes of it. Some might need a little bit of support in psychoeducation and a referral to some place where they can get some yeah. additional services. Another one, when you kind of peel back the 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 skin or the, the pe- peel back the skin, you hear and you learn of all the experiences and the exposures that they're they're dealing with. And when we talk about post traumatic stress, that has historically been a definition or a diagnosis of war veterans and women that have been sexually assaulted. And that is all very true. And there are young people that are living in communities where they get that press of chronic stress, racism, all that, all that affects us also. You know, the, the discrimination, the racism, yeah. and then you, you add in poverty. All this stuff has a physical reaction to to our young people, to our communities. The terrible thing about the nomenclature of post-traumatic stress when we talk about our young people living in impoverished communities is that there is no post. These kids are living in it, and they might be taken away from it for a little bit, but then they go back to it. And so it's like almost like constant Constant. traumatic. It's not even like post-traumatic. It's constant traumatic stress. Right. Mm -hmm. Is and that it, fair? It, it's fair. But what we yeah. don't want to say is that they're not able to heal from it. They're mm-hmm. not able to move past it. But with the work that's happening among the three of three us of and then other other organizations in Philadelphia, yeah. there are resources that can help people heal. Heal, Grow, Thrive is where we want our young people to go. Your brain can be rewired. There's ways of healing the stress that takes over your brain, right? And 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 teaching people new ways of responding. With the right resources and support, our young people can thrive. And, and I and I I think where some instances it's viewed upon young people of color are not necessarily deserving of those resources. Mm-hmm. And so our efforts have been okay, we have the resources and we want to help these young people heal. Yeah. You're in the hospitals. Right. You're dealing with folks at on the front lines when it when they come in and they need help. Boom, you're there. And so, what what exactly do you do at the? So I can I can tell you I'm not alone in this. It's my team. Of course, we <laughs> none, has, of uh, none of y'all none of y'all alone. Sorry, Nobody no, here but, is alone. Right, but right, I have right. an amazing yeah. team that that uh, there's a team of researchers, there's a team of um, frontline workers and social workers. I'm identifying young people that have been victims of interpersonal injury. It doesn't matter what type of injury. We focus on intentional injury. We there are resources for intimate partner violence, there is resources, child neglect and abuse. But we're focusing on this population that have been victims of it. Uh, and what's interpersonal? What's that? Someone who's been shot, someone who's been stabbed, that hasn't been a, a, a result of um, intimate partner Got it. Um, abuse or, or So somebody abuse. in a neighborhood shoots you, stabs yeah. you, whatever, right. you're injured by them, and then they come to you guys. There mm. are resources. There, domestic there, violence. Domestic and violence yeah. and mm-hmm. also child abuse and neglect. There isn't anything in the middle, and largely in part because these are men, boys and men of color. Yes. The majority yeah. of the people that we see are boys and men of color. And so when we identify that mm-hmm. person, we, yeah. we, it's mm-hmm. almost like a consult service. We refer them to our team of we have a team of peers, which are community health worker peers, and a team of social workers that both 
use yeah. both peer support as well as therapeutic support and case management to help this young person or this person. And therapeutic, is that therapy? There mm-hmm. is, a psychologist? It is it, but, but specifically, it's culturally responsive mm-hmm. and culturally, um, culturally responsive in healing. It's not yeah. like we're laying down on a couch to talk about what happened. It's right. like I'm going with you to court and we're going to talk about some stuff. And you do what you need to do to really reach that individual. And I know, Shantae, you have support groups and people meet, and it's very private. Oh, we have Eddie Mir Hillison, and not only do we have support groups, we do alternative ways of healing, whether it's through emotion, through music, through mm. yoga, through movement. And our support groups is really made up for entire families. And so mm. we're talking about taking the entire family or whoever you see your village and say, listen, let's come and let's do this together because we know that we need to help the fabric mm-hmm. of creating the village and how does that look, regardless of how your family is made up of. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are the, one of the key things in not only getting healing where we have the counselors and we have the advocates, we understand in our culture is that we have to meet them where they're at. Mm-hmm. And so we have to do healing in a in an alternative and non-conventional and non-traditional way mm-hmm. because we ha- we understand that the stakes are so high for our people that it's no longer, okay, come sit on the couch. No, it's like let's have this conversation and then let's see where your head is. But also how do we help fix your heart a little bit? Yeah, because a lot of this comes from pain. It comes from pain. But also changing the our communities, because we not only, and I believe we, we all are doing that, we are talking about trauma, which has never been talked about before, but we've been talking about it since the beginning, right? We've been but, talking about it since, but yeah. it's never been talked about like this. On a broad, On a broad community. Scale. Yeah. And, it, and it's talking about us making, making sure there's different systems and different communities that engage with our people are talking as well so that they can heal, so that they don't re-victimize and Mm re-traumatize so that we can all hopefully be on the page of how do we heal not only a family, an individual, but how do we heal a community? How do we heal a block? How do we get schools to operate in that way so that, guess what, we can stop violence so that we do see some of those triggers and we do offer concrete and practical skills. And I think that that's why I said it takes, like you said, it takes all hands on deck. All hands on all, deck. Everybody, it takes all of us. Everybody grab an oar. And I know with um, Ubuntu Philadelphia, that is the effort to kind of do exactly what Shantae said, which yeah. is, you know, you take it from the individual, you take it to the groups of families, and then now you you talking about massive, you know, wide scale healing wide scale massive community healing ubuntu philadelphia is um it's an idea that occurred to me while i was yet behind the walls seeing how communities were divided everybody and you know and, and hunkered down in 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 their various dugouts and silos of pain and the conversation about these rulings was a, a winner loser conversation who won and who lost cuz everybody couldn't celebrate that ruling you know what i mean and so I was thinking about, wow, how do we evolve this conversation, you know, in a way that can evolve our society, evolve our communities. And so, but there was no precedent for me to look to in this country. And so I had to look elsewhere. And I, I saw, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in post-apartheid South Africa. Tell people, because, yeah. so break it down. So how do you do massive, wide-scale healing 
we're learning this as we go along. All of us are. Ted is, Shante is, you are. There is no manual or script to this because what we're going through is unnatural. We're not supposed to be dealing with this one. There's not supposed to be this much violence and victimization. There is no manual or course that you can take. There is no expert, no expertise in this. So what's the proposed solution? The proposed solution is, look, we first thing we have to do is create a safe and free and open space for us to have a dialogue about our various pains and find sameness in each other's sufferings again. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and begin, you know, drawing on all of the things that we've learned, like yoga and, you know what I'm saying, mindfulness and mm-hmm. just dialogue. So at Ubuntu Philadelphia, the first time we did it was at St. Joseph University in the Cardinal Foley Campus Center where we just opened up a space where families of people who lost loved ones to violence, families of people who have committed violence, people who have committed violence themselves, and people who have survived violence just came together for an open dialogue about community healing. You know what I'm saying? And it was layered. We had restorative justice, um, peacekeeping circles, yoga, breathing exercises, collective breathing. Yeah. You know, and um, and we did that. And we had family, families enduring panel where families on both sides of violence were able to communicate and find the sameness in each other. Because just like this mother didn't raise her son to be murdered, this mother over here didn't raise her son to be to, to murder anybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and uh, so yeah. we have to have that communication to start the healing process. And Ubuntu Philadelphia is happening. Saturday. So, yes. And so because this is Flashpoint, y'all, we do have to wrap this oh, up. Oh, my goodness. Hurt people hurt people. So my closing question is, is massive healing possible in a city like Philadelphia? And if so, what would it mean for the violence that so many of us work hard to stop? And it starts with you, Ted. We'll let Kempis end it. Yeah. So I would say massive healing in Philadelphia is absolutely possible. I do believe that everyone has a slice that they can contribute to, whether it's in the community, whether it's in the hospital, whether it's in schools. I think we all have a role to play. And it's not, I I come back that it's not either or, it's an end because this thing is a continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about prevention, intervention. It's about all of that. It takes all of us. Mm-hmm. And does it, can it happen? Absolutely. And sometimes I think when um, you look at society and see all the, all the shootings and you see all the homicides and you think we're not winning. But I tell you, we are. We're winning. And we're winning because... We're able to have this dialogue. We can, we're able to say, this, this caused my pain, but this does not define who I am, and I can respond differently. And I think that a whole city mass healing absolutely can happen. We're talking about restoring a community. We're talking about saving a race of people. Yes, restoration. I like that. Kempis, final word. You know, Albert Einstein said that, you know, imagination is more powerful than knowledge. And I think we're only limited by our imagination in how to solve these issues. We need to start imagining in terms of public health, not just public safety. Public safety deals with things like violence with just three things, more police, more prisons, harsher laws, and sentences. Public health, though, gets down to and understands root causes. Violence in our inner cities and in our communities is a public health issue. Only then will the healing begin. 
Well, I want to say thank you to Kempis Songsters, thank you to Shantae Love, and thank you to Dr. Ted Corbin for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, I got so much to shout about. These gospel rock stars have been chirping for nine decades. From James Brown to the Temptations. The history and future of a Philadelphia legend that helped change R&B. We'll be right back. If you good to you, you ought to Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is the Flashpoint Podcast, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets Philly residents hot under the collar is bad music. Well, that's not a problem with the one and only Dixie Hummingbird. I got so much to shout about. The Grammy Award-winning all-male gospel group made it through Jim Crow, desegregation, doo-wop, disco, and more. woke me up this morning. They use their color-coordinated suits, energetic dance moves, and rock star attitudes to influence R&B groups like The Intruders and The Temptations. And this year, they kicked off a year-long 90th anniversary celebration. Manager and bass singer Ira Tucker Jr. is here to talk about the history and the future of this national treasure. Ira, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Congratulations. 90 years for the Dixie Hummingbirds. 90 years and still going. And still going. So for those who don't know the history of this vivacious group, please give us a summary of when it started and how it ended up in Philly. started in 1928 in Greenville, South Carolina by a man named James Davis. Mm. He was a person who his father was a musician and a pastor. He got some of his buddies together and at school and they started to put a group together and they started singing and they went out on the road and a couple of the guys were having such a great time that it was more of a time than Mr. Davis would like. So when they returned from the tour, he disbanded the group. Mm. Later that year, he decided that he was going to give it another try with some new people. And so he did. And he was thinking of a name that he could use for the group. And one day he was saw this hummingbird flying back and forth, and that impressed him. And so he named his group the Dixie Hummingbirds, and they started traveling throughout the South from Greenville to Greenwood to Spartanburg, and they created a following. In 1938, my father, he was 13 years old. That's when he joined the group. Mm-hmm. Davis went to— Was a baby. Went to my grandmother and asked her if my father could sing. And the group, and she said, yes, if that's what he wants to do. Wow. It was at a time when your limitations were were vast and uh, your opportunities were very limited. Mm -hmm. If you could sing, the possibility of you making a living at it was almost impossible. Yeah, but they did. Oh, yeah. They made a good living. And and just, you know, I know folks have heard... Uh, you know, some of the music of the Dixie Hummingbirds, but they made a, a, a living singing gospel. All of the guys, the, the core guys in the group, that was the only job they ever had. And that's the only job your dad ever had. Only one my and dad and your had. father was the front man. 
Yes, he was. And was known for all kinds of, yeah, Yeah, antics, singing gospel. And see, that was the thing about the hummingbirds. Somehow, Mr. Davis always kept them innovative. Mm. They were always somehow a little different than the other groups because they're. Y'all were like gospel rock stars. Kind of. You know, back in the day when they used to sing under the streetlights. Mm. And the audiences would be across the street. The audiences would be looking at them and praying and clapping. And they had a great time. Well, the hummingbirds, when they would come to sing, it was like crazy. So Mr. Davis realized that he had something and that he was going to give it his best shot. So he needed guys that were willing to make that commitment. And he found them. My father was one of them. If you're a hummingbird and you're able to stay in the group for five years, after five years, you qualify as a member. If you're able to do that, you have made the commitment and shown him that you really want this, Mm -hmm. you know. And he didn't want people who didn't want it bad. Yeah. You had to want it real bad. And your dad wanted it and stayed with the group 70 years, seven zero years. Now, Eventually, the group relocated to Philadelphia. Y'all were down on Gerard Avenue. That's where pe- folks rehearsed on Gerard Avenue. On Gerard Avenue uh, at my father's house and on Sydenham Street in North Philly. We used to have all of the young guys, who were young guys then, we, they used to sit outside and listen to them. There was a group called The Times, and they had a song out that was a cappella that was a big hit, right? They used to come over, The Intruders. They used to come by and listen. They were listening because they knew this was something that they wanted to do. Yeah. Doo-wop was out there, but doo-wop wasn't really for us. Yeah. Doo-wop was more of of the of a white version of a cappella quartet singing that came out of a barbershop. Mm. You know, but what they wanted to do was to come in and participate and give themselves that opportunity mm-hmm. to see if anything could happen for real. Yeah. And it, it did. I mean, they moved to Phil- They came to Philadelphia because Philadelphia had a, a radio station, CBS Radio, had the largest signal on the East Coast. And they, they were big in the gospel. That's why they came to Philadelphia. Yeah, because I understand that the CBS station like really helped make a lot of gospel groups. They did. We, blasting it out to the world. They used to sing live mm-hmm. at the station. And when I was a kid, I used to, my mom would turn on the station and my father would be on the radio. Your dad and the group traveled in style. Oh, yeah, all of the time. They had to. It was six. And they were all in one car, so they couldn't get a Jeep, you know. So they got the largest car they could get that was available to them. Which was? At that time, it was Cadillacs, Fleetwoods, <laughs> or either large Imperials. Um, they were big cars. You they know? rolling. Bunch of black men, well-dressed. Rolling down south in a big yellow canary Cadillac. <laughs> of course, of course. And so this was, we're talking about segregated South. We're talking about Jim Crow active right. and folks getting lynched and, and, and beat up because they're people of color. You talk mm-hmm. about driving while black, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, we talk the, about that today. That was real. Very real. And the thing about it is that they used to sleep in funeral homes because they couldn't get hotel rooms. It's, it's funny because the funeral directors who, who were very nice mm. to them and allowed them to stay in their places eventually turned into the promoters that created the Chitlin Circuit. 
Yeah. A lot of black performers from Diana Ross, everybody did the Chitlin circuit, and that's how you kind of blew up. Oh, yeah. If you didn't travel a circuit, you didn't have your credits. If you were on the Chitlin circuit, then that meant, you know, you were out there. You were something. Yeah, and I know the, the Dixie Hummingbirds had a lot of hits. We had gospel hits, Devil Can't Harm a Praying Man, Christian's Automobile, just a slew of hits. Also, a hit with Paul Simon, Love Me Like a Rock, mm. uh, which we got a Grammy for. Yeah, and uh, also we did a lot of uh, a lot of stuff with Sesame Street early back in the day with Larry Gold. Wow, we've gone through various phases. We went through the civil rights phase, uh, where black uh, power phase, black power, <laughs> all of that. It's amazing. My father, his last show was Paul Simon being elected for the Gershwin Award. He invited the Hummingbirds. Stevie, Mo, man, had a birthday two days before. So mm-hmm. Paul set up a party for him. Mm. And we had a nice little party and cake and stuff for Pop. And then we went and did the, the show and Stevie came in. In the middle of, of Love Me Like a Rock, Stevie stops it. Everyone goes, what's wrong? And he said, I can't hear the lyrics. Yeah. So he pulled it out, put it back and started again. But when they started again, it wasn't really good for my father. His voice was weak. But they started, and he's getting ready to hit this note, and I know that he's going to miss it because there's no way he can make it. And he made it. Wow. And I sat there. But it wasn't that he made it. It was the fact that he had the guts to go for it, Mm -hmm. knowing that he probably wouldn't have. Yeah, and how old was your father at the time? Seventy. 70 years old. I didn't know of the Dixie Hummingbirds. I'll admit that until I saw you all perform at the Ed Bradley mural dedication. Oh, yeah. And and for folks who, you know, just imagine this. You know, you got six men up there, black men. It's hot. But y'all had on blue suits. Right. Color coordinated, making moves. Right. I mean, dancing coordinated, looking like the Temptations. Or should I say the <laughs> Temptations look like y'all? Well, because you all, your, your, your moves... Your coordinated dancing outfits, all of that, the the, the energy actually mm. inspired a lot of groups. Well, thank you. It, it, I used to work for Stevie Wonder for 17 years. I got to meet a lot of people in, in the business. Mm-hmm. From James Brown to The Temptations, all of them. Otis will tell you today that the Dixie Hummingbirds was a major influence on their career. Um I used to have talks with, with uh, Eddie Kendricks all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the Spinners, they attribute the Hummingbirds to being a, a major influence on their career. Most of the groups out there know. When the Hummingbirds came through, they had a lot of obstacles like uh, the Second World War, mm. uh, the Korean conflict, the uh, Vietnam. Well, I mean, all of these things you face. You, members go in, some come back, some come back and don't want to come back in the group. being in a gospel group is not an excuse to get out the draft. Oh, no. Yeah. No, no. But the group stayed together, mm-hmm. changing members but saving the brand, and stayed together for 90 years. Now, and you know? Collectively. And <laughs> now you're the second, third generation of, of Dixie Hummingbirds because your dad. Right. And, and just so everybody know, Ira... Junior here right. is in the group now, am, but yeah. you didn't. You just became a member of the group, and you sang bass, right? 
And it was I noticed just, your voice got a little bit deeper when you said right. <laughs> well, you know, I have to fake it out because <laughs> it's really now I'm not a bass singer, but it's really about making the notes. If you can hit the notes, then as long as you're there. Yeah. You know, what happened was our bass singer decided that he wanted to do something else, and we were really in need, and I just pulled the chair up to the group and started singing with them, and they said, okay, and it felt all right to me. Plus, you know, I mean, I had retired, and even though I was managing the group because in 2000, my mom died in 2010, and she managed the group from the time my father died. Yeah. So I took over from her, and uh, we did this CD together, and that's what I wanted to do. And by the bass singer not continuing with us, it's you stepped on up. Spot. But I, I stepped in. Fortunately, my father yeah. had enough of him and me to make it happen. And so give me the name of the, the folks in the group now. Tory Nettles, Carlton Lewis, uh, Troy Smith, Roy Smith, and uh, Brother Lyndon Baines-Jones. And so y'all are rolling this into the future, celebrating 90 years this year. And you had a big splash at the African-American Museum of Philadelphia. I was there. That's where Wonderful. we got to talk up close. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be a lot going on this year. Oh, we had a great show mm-hmm. at the uh, World Cafe. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure if any of you who were there last Wednesday night at the World Cafe, I enjoyed it as much as you did. Yeah. And so you got more stuff coming up. Oh, yeah. We have a show coming up at Oak Grove Baptist Church on the 16th, and that's in North Philadelphia. Old school stomp down. Yes, right. And then at the end of the month, you have something else? Uh, The choir at Gerard Avenue College. Yeah, Gerard College. Gerard College. The choir is going to do a group of songs that are Dixie Hummingbird songs, all done in a choir format. Yeah, and they're really good. Very interesting. Yeah, and that's going to be at the uh, Gerard College for the group that... uh, Mighty Writers. Yeah, the Mighty Writers. Yeah. Also celebrating the guys who who started the Gerard College March around that wall. Yeah. I was in there with them. Freedom (laughs) Fighters down there. Freedom Fighters. Yeah, Brother Smitty. Yeah, (laughs) and then you guys have just a year-long celebration. You're in documentaries. You're going to be a part of so much history. We're working on now the possibility of uh, approaching former President Obama, his production company. We're trying to see if they would be interested in doing a documentary on the Dixie Hummingbirds on our tour that we're putting together now and also on on the history that the group has. I mean, we're at the Smithsonian. We have a a display there. We're national treasures. So the the core group did everything that they could do. Yeah. Uh, I did everything that I could possibly. As a Mm -hmm. publicist, I tried to make everything happen for them that I could make. And I got the street named after them, the mural. and um, You got a star on yeah, the, the Walk of Mark Fame, of fame so, in Philadelphia. You guys are yeah. known. We, 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 we love Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has shown us love. Yeah. And I just want to say, you know, you guys are going into the future. 90 years. You hear 90 years and you think, <laughs> oh, Lord, you know. But this is, the, you have a, a very uh, invigorated group. Um, this is the, the next generation oh, of yeah. Dixie Hummingbirds, and, and y'all be, are moving forward. And the guys, I'm, I'm the oldest one in the group. When I leave here, there's someone that will step up, and there was someone who will step in. 
that will replace me. Yeah. Because that's the way it's been for 90 years. Because the tradition continues, it continues into the future. That's where we're going to take it. And this is the first 90 years. Can't wait to see what's going to be happening in the future. And congratulations to you, Ira well, Tucker Jr. Well, let, me, let Jr. me say this to you. I, I thank you so much. As I said, we need people to tell this story. And you are the first one to tell this story this way. And my pleasure. So thank you so much to Ira Tucker Jr., a uh, member of the Dixie Hummingbirds. Check them out, and we'll have all the information on kywnewsradio.com. Thank you so much. Next up, a Bucks County nonprofit named after a late musician is honoring the next generation. There have been so many opportunities that they've given me. Their effort to open doors for budding artists coming up. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. The king of pop, Michael Jackson, once said, to live is to be musical, starting with the blood dancing in your veins. Everything living has a rhythm. Do you feel your music? The Danny DeGennaro Foundation is working to help aspiring musically inclined writers, poets, and artists find their rhythm. In the memory of late Bucks County singer, songwriter, and guitarist, Danny DeGennaro. Danny was known to mentor musician hopefuls. Now his namesake is singing the same tune with us in studio to tell us more about their ongoing effort and upcoming concert. His foundation mentee and concert performer, Caitlin Cryan. Caitlin, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so very much for having me. So you're a musician. Yes, I am. So tell us about your work. Well, I play bass and I sing. I've been playing bass for, I guess, Close to three and a half years now. I've been singing on and off, like, kind of throughout my life, pretty much ever since I was able to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, my brother and I, actually, we play a lot of gigs in the local area, a lot of acoustic gigs. He plays acoustic guitar and I sing. We call ourselves the Cryons Acoustic Entertainment. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of cool stuff with the foundation, too, the Danny DeGennaro Foundation. Yeah. How did you somehow find they were placed in my life. Um, I was looking into scholarships that my school offered, and somehow I found out about the Danny DeGennaro Foundation. And as I was reading about it, I was like, wow, this is so perfectly tailored to, you know, what I'm seeking as an aspiring musician. I auditioned for the scholarship. They, um, you know, they assigned a piece for all of the applicants to learn. And I learned the piece, and I played it for the judges. And I guess they liked it because <laughs> they ended up granting me the scholarship. So you got the scholarship, but what the real value here is the mentoring you get with it. Oh, yes. It started with the Creative Inspiration concert in 2017. They told me that I could select a couple of songs to that I would like to play and sing in the concert. And they would set me up with professional musicians who would back me up on stage. And that was how I met Johnny Betts, who has become one of my absolute favorite people to work with. So, yeah, that was how it started. And eventually, you know, they offered me more performance opportunities. I got to meet a bunch of other fantastic musicians. And so, first of all, how old are you? I'm 19. So you're 19 years old. And how long have you been working with the organization? Really only like about a year, I think. So over the past year, you've had all those opportunities. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's that's really only the beginning. But there there have been so many opportunities that they've given me to record, perform. Sounds like it's been opening a lot of doors. Did you know yeah. Danny at all? Had no, you heard of him? I never got to meet him, unfortunately. I actually had not even heard of him until I found out about the scholarship, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I wish I knew the guy because he sounds fantastic. He mm-hmm. sounds like a wonderful person who I probably would have had a lot in common with. Yeah, he's had a, quite, a, quite an impact on my life since I heard about him. 
And that's amazing, right? Yes. Because that's what I think his family and friends wanted. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think it's beautiful that they have been able to to do this for him. Mm -hmm. And so you all will be performing. Yes. (laughs) The concert is September 28th. My brother and I will be performing in the VIP area. Um, Yeah, Cara Carney is headlining the VIP area. And um, this year's scholarship winners are going to be featured in the show. Are you announcing there? Do people know yet who the scholarship winners are? Yes, people know. We have Sylvia Salas and B. Niranon. Wonderful. And they're all musicians. Um, well, a couple of them are musicians. However, there's also the Danny DeGenero Art Award that has been offered to. Multiple award types yeah, here uh-huh. for different types of artists. Yes. Avery White received the award last year. And this year we have painter Vanessa Pascalone. She is the winner this year of the Art Award. And so this foundation is sort of changing the lives of artists by opening doors yes. for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so where do you think you'd be now? A year from, if you hadn't, hadn't stumbled upon uh, this foundation, where do you think you'd be now trying to do this? Um, it would be a lot more difficult. I've made so many great connections with other professional musicians here. I certainly would not have as many gigs as I have gotten over the course of the last year. I certainly wouldn't have as many friends as I've made in the last year. And obviously the financial component is a humongous help. It helps me to you know, pursue the knowledge that I need as a musician in order to pursue this professionally. Yeah. And so tell me your dream for yourself, your vision. My dream for myself is really just to be able to make a living as a professional musician and to be able to financially support myself doing what I love. Yeah. And this is not the beautiful thing. Yes. That to is, be able yeah. to, 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 it's not really a job if you exactly. love it that is so and true. you're able to make money from it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's ultimately like, that's all I want. Yeah. Most, most of all, more than anything else that I want the foundation to know is just how incredibly grateful I am to them for everything they have provided me with over the course of the last year or so. Yeah. And, and sky's the limit eternally grateful. Yeah. And where can people go to get tickets? How much of the tickets do you have all the details? The ticket cost is $30 for a general admission and $50, $50 for a VIP reception. You can get your tickets at Slot Performing Arts Center box office. The number is 215-968-8087 or online at bucks.edu slash tickets. Wonderful. And you can find out more information about the Danny DeGenero Foundation at dannydegenero.org. And the last name is spelled D-E-G-E-N-N-A-R-O. Yes. So, Caitlin, I mean, I'm so proud of you and I hope you kill it at the VIP reception. So good luck to you and congratulations. And, um, you know, especially to the foundation as they continue this legacy. Oh, before I go, where can people find you? On Facebook. Just search for The Crying's Acoustic Entertainment. The Crying's Music is the Instagram for my brother and I as acoustic musicians. Wonderful. And Crying is spelled C-R-Y-A-N. Thank yes. you so much, Caitlin Crying. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Greg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts app, or other platforms you use to get your pods. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. There's an issue that makes you hot under the collar? Let us know, and we'll walk you through the flames. As Bible teacher and sex abuse survivor Beth Moore once said, I'm far better off healed than I ever was broken. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.